0: Plundergrounds Episode 102 Light Rules Systems Plundergrounds Plundergrounds welcome back to a brand new show Ray's gonna take you where you didn't know you wanted to go. Fantasy and dungeon Delve, science fiction watch yourselves So why did I say light rules rather than rules light? Well, rules light is a phrase that I've tossed around a number of times, but I was reminded again in a discussion on the Audio Dungeon Discord, a really good discussion, about how labels are not helpful, and how much baggage comes with them, and how much they assume that isn't very definable. And so, a phrase like "rules light" is a little tricky. What does that mean? What would you consider a rules light game? What you consider a rules light game might be entirely different than what I consider a rules light game. Some people would call Savage World rules light. Some people would say Dungeon World is rules light. Uh, neither of those are what I would think of as rules light, but. It's not a helpful term. So I'm going to talk about light rule systems, and I'm going to try to define that up front as a system that provides a mechanism or mechanisms for answering what happens in a role-playing game based on the uh, fictional situation and relative factors. And it does it in an economical package, preferably one that can be taught in just a few minutes. So we're talking about a system that doesn't have endless mechanics, we're talking about a system that can be taught fairly quickly, um, and hopefully, and this is something that applies to really all role, uh, role-playing role game systems, we're talking about a system that is transparent, so doesn't include a bunch of rules that's only in the GM's head, um, that covers the basics, you know, how to manage your resources, how to resolve conflicts, how to make rulings at the table, um, and... What else? One that's consistent, where the systems, if there's more than one mechanism, they seem to complement each other and fit together um, in a way that's not confusing or or counterintuitive. Uh, All those things. That's what we're talking about. And why are we talking about rules, light systems? Sorry, light rules systems. (laughs) It's so easy to fall into the habit. Uh, We're talking about them because it is Arneson Appreciation Month among the Anchorite podcasters. Now, I don't Remember where this idea came from? I don't think it was my idea. I do remember helping to organize it. Uh, I asked uh, that we create a separate channel on the Discord for it and I suggested some topics by week. I asked for input on those suggestions and nobody really said anything and then um you know now it's kind of like <laughs> they've become I don't know problematic for some people or whatever. Um so whatever, I mean, you know the topics are the topics. I didn't mean to like uh, be prescriptive for people, but this week's topic was Rules, we don't need no stinking rules. And it was based on the notion that when Arneson started his Blackmore campaign, it was about the same time the chainmail rules were put out, and he was aware of those chainmail rules, was given a copy. But it doesn't seem like he ever used them much. And he didn't use them much either because uh, he already had a rules system that he was working with that was mostly in his head, according to his players. Or he tried them and decided he could do better. And I'm not sure we'll ever know the exact truth of that. There's um, fuzzy memories on what was going on before and after uh, in his game at that time. But uh, he discarded kind of heavier rule set and went with a very flexible, uh, agile rule set at the table. Now, the problem with Arneson's rule set, I think, is that it was uh, never... Consistent, like it would change from week to week. Uh, And uh, that was was partly because he was designing on the fly, right? So things that work, he'd keep and things that didn't work, he he wouldn't keep, but it never reached any kind of uh, semi-mature state, you know, that got written down. Uh, but it's interesting in that he used very few rules and accomplished a lot with those very few rules. A lot of people say that his basic rule system was just roll 2d6. And if you roll high, your view of the fiction prevails. And if you roll low, um, the GM tells you what happens. And if if it rolls in between, we negotiate, right? So uh, that's, that's a pretty basic rule system. <laughs> I love light rule systems. I really do. I... I'm of a notion that there are some fallacies running around in role-playing, and I um, want to be very aware of the fact that what people believe isn't necessarily reality, right? And uh, that includes me. So when somebody says that, uh, like, one of the fallacies I want to point out is um, some people think you need a deep set of rules to support long-term play. Um, that's what they believe. I don't think that's reality because there are people who... Have played months and years and decades uh, on very simple rule systems, and I know personally a few of those groups that have done that um, some of my friends up in Montreal. Have been playing for decades using uh, 3d6 and nominally the rules from the Fantasy Trip, but I uh, I've read the Fantasy Trip and what I've seen at their table isn't that. It's much much more basic than that. At any anyway, rate, they have very few rules and they've been playing for years and years using those very few rules. And so I know that you can have um, uh, you know long term play based on a light rule set. Now is that exceptional? I don't know. I don't have a large enough I don't have a large enough experiential set to say, but I do. I've heard of and know several groups that have run a long time on very. Light like rules. So I would say observationally, I don't believe that that's true, that you need a deep set of rules to support long-term play. What's more, I don't believe that. Um, now, my belief and reality aren't necessarily aligned. So I guess we'd have to do a deep study to find out um, whether deep rule sets really do help support long-term play or not. But I don't believe that they do. That's not my belief. Uh, I also think uh, that the, the, uh, that there's a fallacy That rules that cover every possible character action lead to fewer arguments at the table, or that uh, let's just simplify that and say, rule sets that are very deep lead to fewer arguments at the table. My experience has been that there's as many or more arguments at the table over deep rule sets as there are over light rule sets. Most of this has to do with your table. It has to do with the level of trust at your table. It has to do with how focused everybody is on having fun and how giving they are to uh, help each other have spotlight time and accomplish character goals and things like that. So it's really more about the social contract than it is about the rules as to how many arguments arise at the table. And that's probably always going to be the truth. Um, Rules may or may not play into that. But the more that's written down is is um, <laughs> it gives you more to argue about. Um, the converse of that is the less that's written down uh, sometimes can be frustrating, right? So I imagine Arneson's players got very frustrated at times about not knowing what the rules were. And I remember when I was playing Blackmore with Bob Meyer at um, Gary Khan, he said one of the one of the big revelations when D&D came out in 1974, uh, was that they finally had a set of the rules. I <laughs> think they, they could actually look at the rules and see what happens and understand the system. And, uh, that seemed like he said it in a way that seemed like it was a bit of a relief. And I, I believe that it probably was, uh, even though those rules were not all that clear, uh, I think it was probably much better than what they'd had up to that date. Well, so the third fallacy that I'd kind of written down, I'm sure there's lots out there, and you could probably point me to some, is that more options in character building means each character feels more special. I've already addressed this a little bit in my talk with Cody and Delving Deeper and and pointed out that in his game where there are a dozen or more players um, and they only have three classes to choose from, and stats are not all that important and everything's fairly narrow in terms of of character options that uh there's nobody there that doesn't feel like their character is unique or special or different from other people's characters right or that there's competition among types of characters in that sense there's really more if if, if anything brotherhood among uh, types of characters but um, if you're playing a dwarf you want to know who else is playing a dwarf it's almost like how Canadians uh, if you go to the movies with a Canadian you know they'll tell you every actor in the movie that's a Canadian there they always know you know there's a sense of brotherhood and national pride there and uh, I um, I think on the on the other end of that to help disprove that fallacy when you have, like, let's let's pick on 3.5, because everybody loves to pick on D&D 3.5. Um, I don't think it was that bad of a system. I don't necessarily want to play it, <laughs> but I, I think it probably gets a little more hate than it deserves these days. Uh, there were endless feet trees and classes and multi-classing that you could do. But honestly, there were optimal lines. And uh, if, and many, many people built the same characters over and over, right? Because of those optimal lines. And I find that, uh, if anything, that those prescribed pathways create more similarity among characters, not less. Um, when there's not rules to support uh, a specific build... And you have to just make things up to make a character interesting, to breathe life into the character, and you're not on rails, right? So you're more likely to do something unique. Well, I don't know. This this is uh, again. I don't. I'm not trying to persuade you one way or the other, but. I'm telling you what I think, and my thinking is, is that um, more that more options in character building does not necessarily mean that each character feels more special. Um, that it can happen, that your character can be special either way. There's always people who are inventive, there are always people that want to go down a tried and true path. Um, I think there's room for both, and there's neither. there's no wrong way to build a character, per se probably is. I don't know. It just doesn't feel like that there should be somebody saying there's a wrong way to do it. And uh, I guess that's the fallacies I wanted to point out. Even calling them fallacies may be problematic because I'm saying that they're illogical. Um, All I'm saying is that uh, you have your beliefs. I have my beliefs. Uh, We can probably always bring out examples to argue that what we believe is true. But the truth is, that there's a range of stuff there. And if you assume anything about what a light rule set means or what a heavy rule set means, you're probably going to be proven wrong by a real-life example. And so you should be careful about making those assumptions. I'm more interested in disproving assumptions than I am uh, asserting new assumptions in place of old ones, if that makes sense. So that's what I wanted to say about uh, light rules. And I think the thing interesting about um, Arneson in relation to this idea of an ever-growing rule set, and actually just in early D&D in general, was the idea that everybody, every GM would have his or her own game, Uh, meaning that you would take this base of rules and that you would add some uh flavor to them by choosing which races were in your campaign by having a th- you know thematic uh influences on your campaign like you one person might do an arabian Nights style campaign while another might want to do one based on uh, norse mythology right and they would feel very different and might have different uh classes in them uh for instance the norse one might have berserkers and um skin changers whereas the uh uh, Arabian Nights one might have uh, you know people who are descended from uh uh djinn or um cities of brass and things like that right so there's there's obviously just uh, differences between games but there's more than that there's rules differences between games where uh some some GMs might have allowed certain classes or disallowed other classes or have consistent rulings that differ from another GM's consistent rulings on things like, you know, drowning or whatever, you know, whatever you can imagine could happen in-game, and that uh, each GM's table would become this kind of uh, microcosm of the entire role-playing world, and this is a little bit what uh, Rob Kuntz was trying to get at, I think, in his book Arneson's True Genius, was... The idea that uh, the the ideal system, the Garden of Eden State, as he called it, would be for all these microcosms to exist, but for there to be a larger awareness or community through things like newsletters that would share ideas and some of the best practices would then get wide adoption, widespread adoption, maybe not universal adoption because you always want to have room for people to flex and grow and evolve and test. Uh, but that, uh, you'd have this perfect uh, balance between uh individual tables and their innovations uh and practices and the larger set of best practices and discussion about uh how to best role play or or what works well in role playing kind of idea. And that's that's a pretty neat idea and I think that's where early D D was going. Um and then according to Kuntz, and I and I think this is an interesting argument that when Gygax wrote A D, he moved from an open system to a closed system and i think he did do that for but uh, the reasons Arneson says he does it, did it and why i'm sorry the reasons that rob Kuntz said he did it and the reasons why i think he did it are, are probably differing and i think it was more of a practical move i think the the business side of things was becoming more apparent to Gygax. and uh for people to be able to it was it was becoming beyond his control is you know the ability of one person to write everything for the system and so if he was going to have other people write for his system, he needed to codify it in a way that was consistent enough so that uh, any two or three people writing modules for it wouldn't have such differences that uh, any any play group out there couldn't adopt any one of the modules and play it, right? You couldn't have modules that were based on house rules that differ so so much that um, that the modules weren't uh, you know playable in the same universe. You didn't want to have to change rules every time you change modules, is maybe a better way to say it. But in in any case, for whatever reason he did it, uh, AD&D did move to more of a closed system, and Gygax stopped encouraging GMs to kind of invent their own systems. Or maybe I should say it a better way. He started saying that um, you know you're free to invent your own systems, but it's not D&D anymore, and and started putting a hard line on what was D&D and what was not D&D in a a gatekeeping sort of fashion. And uh, Kuntz, you know, argues that the world would be better if we never moved to that closed system. I, I think it's a little bit naive. And um, if you look at Arneson systems, they certainly didn't get less complex over time. They got more complex over time. Uh, And uh, we did not ever see grand adoption because we do have this larger discussion going on about what makes good role playing, what's best practices in role playing. And it evolves, right? So in the last decade, there's been a lot of good talk about inclusivity. And um, not having a hobby that's defined by dead white guys, and uh, that's fine, right? I mean, it's no—I I sometimes don't like that phrase because, as a white guy, it stings a little. Um, but I understand it, and uh, that uh, there should be representation uh, from all perspectives in a game that we want all perspectives to play in, right? Uh, I don't know if I said that well, but if we want our table to to reflect the diversity. Um, that the wonderful diversity that we see in the world, then it, then it has to come from a place of diversity, and so we, we want to, you know, there's been an effort in, uh, and, and I mean that in the capital E sense effort, there's been an effort among role-playing designers to be more inclusive from the get-go, in the design, not just in who the audience of the game is, but in who the creators are, so your creator set, you're looking for a more diverse creator set, and that's great! that's fantastic. There's nothing wrong with that. It, uh, sometimes gets a little problematic in the way it's expressed and can feel a little off when you're looking at it from the outside. But, uh, but I understand the impulse and I think it's uh, a good one and it leads to good things. And so, uh, that's, uh, I, I, but where was I going with this? Well, I do think we do have this larger community that, that, where we talk about role-playing games all the time among social media and discord and uh you know all kinds of like that isn't a social media that's social media too um you know at gaming tables and game shops and wherever else we talk about it but primarily social media let's be honest uh where people compare notes and talk about what works and what doesn't and what they think might work and what they think uh, might not work and um you know it's just a it's a great uh, proving grounds for systems to to know what's been tested and what hasn't been tested and uh it's just it's a very cool time in that respect and we all arrive at some conclusions about games um or or not I'm not sure how much consistency there is in uh, on some days but I feel like uh what? Has it been more harmful than not harmful? I mean, I feel like there's sometimes when systems get a rap and it's not always deserved. But I think for the most part, um, people are smarter about making recommendations. Let's put it that way. Uh, we're better at characterizing role-playing games when we stay away from labels, especially, and just talk about it. So if I want to talk about Savage Worlds, I'd say, well, uh, Savage Worlds is very well designed for... Uh, you can play at theater of the mind, but it's really well designed for miniatures play. Uh, on a grid. Uh it's fast fun and furious just like its tagline says. It uses a lot of mechanisms that don't always feel like they fit together, Bennies, cards, you know, uh, all the polyhedral dice. Uh so if you like uh tactile elements in your game, you're going to like that. I think it's a I think it is a very tactile game. Uh plays quickly, you can handle large numbers of combatants. It is a fighty game uh all those things are true that's much better than saying it's a trad game because trad game has a lot of baggage and means certain uh well means certain things to certain people it doesn't mean um a set of agreed upon things to anyone it's not well defined uh, but that's that's how I would describe Savage Worlds. And then if I'm going to describe Dungeon World, I'd say... Uh, and these are games that I've played, so I, you know, I, I can only really do a good job of describing games that I've played a significant amount of time, uh, put a significant amount of time into. Dungeon World is a uh, fiction-first game where... You really care a lot about uh, fictional positioning, which is to say how you describe the environment and how do you describe your character acting within the environment matters a lot. Um, There are different ways, for instance, to engage in combat, and it's all based on how you talk about what your character is doing. So... You might, uh, uh, say you're, you might, uh, describe an attack in such a way that it becomes the hack and slash move, or you might describe an attack in such a way that it becomes the defend move or the volley move. Uh, and that's all just based on the fiction, and the whole idea of the system is to move you back and forth between the dice and the fiction in a seamless way so that you're not really ever breaking fiction, uh, any more than you have to. Uh, it, uh, is a, a game that you can teach fairly quickly, but not, uh, Not necessarily one that's just awesome for one-shots. You know, it's really better in long-term play. Uh, It does take, you know, 10 minutes or so, I think, to teach well. And uh, 15 to 20 minutes to set up characters, even though you could do it a lot faster once you know the system. I mean, you could build a character in two minutes uh, if you know the system, but if you're introducing playbooks to people, it's a, new, it's a novel enough concept that it takes a little while to explain it well and to get them comfortable with what's going on with the move mechanic and the playbooks and all that. Uh, but it, I would not call it, uh, even though it's fiction first, I don't know that I would call it a story game. Partially because I don't even know really what that means. Some people hang it on narrative control. Some people hang it on uh, director stance and all these other terms. I, eh, it's a game, you know, I don't know what that means. So I can't, I can't label it a story game. I just like, I don't really know what I don't know. I mean, I, I have a very, um, there's a kind of, book definition of OSR that I could go with but OSR has come to mean a lot more things than than just uh games based on rules from the 70s uh and early 80s D- uh, you know mostly D&D rules from the 70s and early 80s but uh, so, let's see. How else would I describe Dungeon World? It uses all the dice, but it mostly cares about 2d6. That's the that's where the big mechanic... And it actually... I say it uses all the dice, but it really pretty much never uses a d20. So, um, that's interesting. And it's a player-facing system. So, players make all the rolls. The GMs make very few rolls. Mostly, if they roll anything, it's monster damage. Uh, it's quick to build for. It's... Um, it can become a little cumbersome in terms of the number of moves that are out there if you don't realize they're all the same move, just just iterated different ways, right? So different ways to it's it's basically how you build them fictionally that makes the difference. Uh, but there's only a few basic patterns that you need to recognize to to really learn the game. Uh, so it's not really that deep of a learning curve, but sometimes it feels like it because of the way it's constructed and it is a little bit of an oddball game it's kind of in between a lot of systems and it does take some uh explaining to people and uh it takes a little bit of like uh f- you have to flip a switch in your mind to get it okay so that's that's uh, dungeon world should i do one more i think i think i will I think I'll talk about uh, something really light like, well, lasers and feelings I know super well and I've described it a number of times, but lasers and feelings use D6s only. You're looking at the number of successes to uh, see how well you do. So it's a system that has not just success or failure, but gradations of success or failure like Dungeon World does as well. But that's kind of an interesting thing. Um, It is eminently made for one shots and for quick learn. Uh, qu- uh, you know, quick to build character, quick to learn system. You can get a game rolling in five minutes. Uh, most, uh, you only really have one stat, and uh, that creates the one number that is your stat, creates essentially two stats because you've got times when you're trying to roll over it and times when you're trying to roll under it. Um, and depending on two poles of, you know, in this case of lasers and feelings, that's whether your action is governed by lasers, science, uh, logic, whatever, um, uh, mechanical things, or feelings, passion, persuasion, action action, physical action, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, y- you know, there's, oh gosh, there's not much else to say about it. It's fun. It's a it's a lot of fun. Uh, it probably isn't designed for long-term play. And that's partly because it just... Uh, you could certainly play it for a long time. But, um, hmm, why, why do I say that? Why do I say that it's not designed for long-term play? It doesn't have... An, let me just say that. Let me, uh, let me say, I don't know... Uh, how well it holds up over long term play. It does not have an advancement system, uh, but I don't believe you need an advancement system for long term play. And you can certainly add one to it. Uh, I my my favorite thing to do to it to add a long term play mechanic is to allow people to write one one line stunts, uh, which are things that they're always prepared to do in the fiction, or they're always experts at in the fiction. Um, uh, and in the case of like a, like if your character is an elementalist, um, you would write down basically a spell. Or if you're a fighter, you might down write down a, a trick that you use, you know, some sort of like throw your sword or something like that as a thing that you're always prepared to do. Uh, and that gives you an extra die when you're trying to roll for it. Uh, it is also a fictional positioning game heavily. So because h- how you earn more dice to roll is by how you position things fictionally. Well, that's, uh, that's some descriptions of basic games, and I think it's an illustration of a couple things. One, um, there are games that are lighter rule sets that are quicker to teach, that, that take up fewer pages, that have fewer mechanics, and there are deeper rule systems that have, uh, rule books with lots of pages and lots of examples and lots of systems that you can engage in and lots of options, um, and one's not better than the other. You just have to describe them differently, and they, uh, matter differently to players. Uh, some players want to learn deep systems. Some do not. Some people feel like they, um, you know, want uh, the rules support for long term play, and some people think they're just fine without it. And um, that's all true. (laughs) So it illustrates that there are different types of games and it illustrates that labels don't help, that it's better to describe a game than to um, just quickly label it and assume people know what you mean when you say story game or trad game or rules light or crunchy or whatever. Um, And I think it also, uh, to bring it back to Arneson, I think in the end that players will resist a system that is too much in the GM's head. Uh, it's okay to design a little bit as a GM and play with different notions at the table, but in the end, players need something they can engage with, not just the fiction, but something that's a little bit on how they need some understanding of how things are going to be resolved so that they can uh, play their characters effectively and drive towards character goals effectively. And if they don't know how things are going to be resolved, they can't do that, right? So. Uh, You know, ultimately, I don't think while Arneson's style of playing was supportable long term because he was Arneson and entertaining and people liked to game with him. I'm not sure how sustainable it is at many tables just because it, it was too much in his head and nobody can really explain exactly what Arneson's rule system was because, uh, you would have to first go to a point in time and then uncover that, uh, (laughs) before you, before you made a comment because it changed from week to week. And I don't, I don't think that that's always a healthy thing. I think some change is good. uh, Some experimentation is good. Uh, but, uh, you know, also at some point it needs to be written down and needs to be transparent to players. Well, I had lots more to talk about, but uh, I think that's enough for today. I think we've covered uh, the topic that I wanted to cover. Um, next time, I kind of got this notion. Well, I've been playing around with, if you look at my blog, of com, I've been playing around with Um, An article that Gary Gygax wrote in 1975 about campaign building. And a friend of mine, JJ, and I have been working through that system. We've been doing some blog posts about it. I will talk more about that in the next show, hopefully with JJ. I also have this uh, notation in my journal right now, and I don't know if I'll talk about it more or not, I'm not sure where the idea is going, but I wrote down at the top of the page, Spelljammer as Star Trek, um, or do I mean Star Trek as Spelljammer, I'm not sure which I meant there, but uh, Spelljammer as Star Trek, and I was thinking about, um, you know, if you're going to do a fantasy Spelljammer style thing, but but make it more like Star Trek and less like Spelljammer, um, if that makes sense to you, because uh, especially original series Star Trek um, and Next generation a little bit too had this very uh specific feel to it that was i think manageable as a game and a gm and so i was looking for federation analogs um uh, the three class system prime directive the idea of uh, uh you know what space is is to flow just on as the final frontier um klingons are they at works romulans are they drow vulcans are they elves Which I think the Romulans Vulcans thing uh, being Drow and Elves makes a lot of sense because there's a relationship in Star Trek between the Vulcans and the Romulans. Um, What would dilithium crystals be in? In Spelljammer, uh, I don't like the way um, I guess you supposedly fed magic items into a furnace and in the into the helm, and that's how you powered ships in Spelljammer. I don't like that at all because it's like this endless quest for magic items and then to just destroy them. I don't know. Um, I, in my own game of the Fire Arignis, I made up these uh, ancient sentient stones called the the uh, helm stones. Uh, and I you know, might go with that, but uh, there might be other things I could use. If if you have a power source like the lithium crystals, it also brings into questions things like uh, phasers and transporters and other things you could power with them. So it might be better to kind of restrict it to like a fixed setup. Well, so I'm starting to build now, but I'm just like in my head, I'm starting to build this whole idea of um, how would you quote unquote fix spell jammer? Because I think there's a lot of cool things about spell jammer and I've got a whole podcast in my head. I think uh, now, the more I think about it, the more I realize I could go on quite a while. So- So we'll save that for another day, Uh, but I'll give you, that's a bit of a teaser there. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm Ray signing off. Uh, You know, Logan Howard, he always does that uh, theme song that you love to hum and that I love to hum. And he has a podcast called Swordbreaker and an erstwhile zine called Swordbreaker. um, that comes out now and then. That's always excellent. And you should check it out. Uh, TJ Drennan is going to sing us out with his uh, version of, well, his version his original song about Dave Arneson uh, that he created just for the Anchorites, Arneson Appreciate Arneson Month, and he's got a Patreon, you can go find it um, you can I'll link it in my show notes, but you can go find it, and he uh, does music for podcasters, so if you support him at any level, you can get access to some bumpers and other cool little things that you can shove into your audio productions or video productions um, um and what else? Nothing else. Oh, well, I guess I forget. I should always mention my website, com. That contains links to all my other sites. I've been trying to uh, compartmentalize a little bit. So I've got a blog called The Viridian Scroll. I've got some older projects like Ray's Radio Revival, which is about old time radio. I've got uh, my storefront, which is kind of slowly migrating from Jellysaw Games over to Itch.io. To uh, I've been trying that out lately to see what that's like as a storefront. And I don't know, just lots of other stuff going on there. Monster Brothers with Logan, which one of these days will re- resurrect. I keep saying that. Uh, got to make it happen. It's on me, really. I'm the one that's holding it up, I think. So until next time, look out for those rest monsters. Gary and Dave shared credit on the White bus But as things advanced, their relationship was on the rocks Maybe less people know his name But he revolutionized war games With the first fantasy campaign So